All right, take your Bible and turn to Galatians uh, chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We've been in a study of uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians since October, and the theme is the gospel. <laughs> Surprising. And today in our passage, Paul is going to again emphasize that our relationship with Jesus is faith plus nothing. Are you tired of hearing that? I hope that you're not. That is the most liberating message, in fact, that a human being can ever hear. I firmly believe that, that Jesus is enough, that it is faith plus nothing. And we can have a relationship with the God of the universe, and we don't have to impress him in order for him to call us his son or his daughter. That's an incredible thing. Most people, if you think about it, in order to have a relationship with them, outside of your family at least, you have to somehow impress them, right? And a relationship with Jesus is not based on how impressive we are. You simply trust in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as payment for your sin, and that is it. Nothing else. It's Jesus plus nothing, and as we've said for several weeks, that gives us everything. Now, some may say you've said that at least a dozen times over the past few months, and you would be correct in uh, saying that. And guess what? I'm probably going to say it several more times between Matt and myself in the next month or so before we complete our study. And if you're new to Northwest, I want to let you know that if you hang around here for any length of time, you're going to notice a reoccurring theme, and that is the gospel. We talk about it all the time because a relationship with Jesus, we say, changes everything. In fact, not only does it change everything, but it is foundational to this life and to the life to come. Some people believe that my relationship with Jesus is just simply about the life to come. It's making sure that my eternity is secure in heaven. Well, that's great and that's true, but it is foundational right now for this life that you and I are living today. And so I want to go ahead this morning and give you the big idea or the theme uh, for today. And it, it is this, that we continually teach about the pure gospel, Paul will tell us in this text, because of two things. Number one, because the consequences of not understanding the pure gospel are devastating. Think about that for just a moment. Some of you have come out of religious backgrounds where you were not taught the explicit pure gospel. And those consequences for you were devastating up until this point where you came to understand that it is Jesus alone, it is faith in Christ, finished work alone that gives me the relationship that I was created to have with God, that makes sure that my sin debt has been marked paid in full. But up until this point, the consequences for you were devastating. It meant that potentially if you died without Christ, you would spend eternity without Jesus apart from God. And so the consequences of not understanding the pure gospel are devastating, and that's why we teach the pure gospel. And then secondly, and Paul will emphasize this this morning in our text, it's because we love people. I want to say at the outset that, you know, a guy that's wired like me, and that's why it's good that Matt and I are on the same team, a guy that's wired like me, sometimes you can look at me and, and, and as I'm preaching, as I'm teaching, as I'm involved with you one-on-one, -on -one, you could say, man, he is just mean. Does he really, does he even care? Does he, does he even like me? Does he even, I do. And that's why I do what I do. That's why I say what I say. That's why when I open up the word of God, I teach it to you as clearly as I can, even though it may in moments seem to be offensive to you. 
That's why we do what we do, because we love people. That's why we teach about the pure gospel. And for those two reasons, Paul is going to emphasize that to the Galatians in our text today. And so in verse 8, it says this. I'm not going to read the whole text. I'm just going to go through it here verse by verse. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Oftentimes, I hear people make this statement. In fact, there probably aren't too many Discover Northwest that go by or even a Northwest 101 class at the beginning of the class where somebody doesn't say this. I've always known God. Now, let me tell you this morning, theologically speaking, you have not always known God. You may have, since you were a little child, always known about God. In fact, Romans 1 makes it very clear that you did always know about God, that his truth was imprinted on your heart at birth, but you have not always known God. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 25, and I hope that sometime we'll be able to do a study of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Everybody knows there's something else that's out there, that there is somebody that's higher than them, that there is a sovereign one. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And what did God do as a result? Verse 24, it's where we get our sin nature. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So before the Galatians came to Christ, their religion was that of works, and they were slaves to various man-made gods who were actually no gods at all. And the unredeemed, those people who have not yet crossed that line of faith, who have not come to understand the pure gospel, are slaves not only to the law, but to idols as well. This is who we are before we, we come to Jesus. We're all by nature worshipers. We're hardwired to attribute ultimate worth to someone or to something bigger than ourselves. It could be a, a religion. It could be anything. It could be a hobby, a political system, a philosophy, a sport. I'm watching the NFL last night, and I'm going, if there's ever a bunch of worshipers, it's them. Look at Lambeau Field this afternoon or this evening. It is a bunch of worshipers, right? Why else would you be out there when it's 12 below stinking zero, Right? You're worshiping, you're attributing worth and value and significance to something. Everyone worships someone or something that is bigger than themselves, and they look to that for ultimate meaning. And whatever we worship other than God will enslave us. In fact, Tim Keller says this, if anything but Jesus is a requirement for being happy or worthy, that thing will become our slave master. It will become what we worship. Now, I want to stop here for a moment because this is so vitally important. This is the picture of everyone who does not know Jesus. Because as I said, we're all worshipers. We will worship whatever it is that we think we need in order to be fulfilled or satisfied or have a sense of satisfaction in life. In fact, the demons know that we're built to worship and they're delighted if we worship anyone or anything other than Christ. 
They really don't care what you worship. Satan, the demons, they don't care what you worship or who you worship as long as it's not Jesus. We'll talk about that at the end of our time together. And so the idolatry and slavery of religion, I really believe, is ultimately probably more dangerous than idolatry and slavery of irreligion because it's less obvious. You think about that. If you go to a country as I've gone to and you you go into a little hut and you see wooden images or carved other things, you go, those people are irreligious. That's idolatry. That's irreligious idolatry. I believe that religious idolatry is actually sometimes more damaging because we're deceived into thinking that we're actually close to God when in fact we're not. Paul goes on to say in verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, it's almost as if he makes a mistake. Now, the Apostle Paul was a brilliant man, and so I'm sure he didn't make a mistake, and we know he couldn't have made a mistake because he was writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, so I know all the theological ramifications there. But it's almost like something slips out of his mind, and then he goes, what I really mean to say is this. Before you came to know God, uh, before that, that time, or rather to be known by God, to know in the Bible means more than intellectual awareness. As I said before, you can never say, I've known God all my life. You have not known God all your life. You may have known about God. To know in the Bible means more than an intellectual awareness. To know someone is to enter into a personal relationship with him or her. The only reason that we know God is because he knew us first. You understand that, right? I don't want to get into all of our uh, theological ramifications of that, but sovereign election means this. It means to be known by sovereign choice because God chose to know you and I. In fact, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says this, In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction, the atonement for our sins. Verse 19, we love, why? Because he first loved us. You didn't first love God. You didn't go out seeking God. God came to you and he found you and he rescued you. One Bible teacher said, if we know Jesus and know that he knows us, we will enjoy him and we will push the controlling idols aside when we find our total satisfaction in him. He goes on to say, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want, you want to be once more. They've abandoned their liberty for bondage. Paul had, had come to them and he had, and he had told them that, that you are free because of the cross, because of, because of Jesus, you're free. You don't any longer have to do all of these things in order to attain righteousness, in order to be right, have to have a right standing before God. When they were ignorant, they served false gods, gods and they had experienced uh, the tragedy of pagan slavery. But then they trusted Jesus as their Savior, and they'd been delivered from all of that. And Paul's saying, why would you go back to that again? Why would you do that? Once you've experienced freedom, why would you do that? Warren Wiersbe, who's one of my favorite uh, preachers, you've listened to him for years and years. He wrote on this text, and he said, Now they were abandoning their liberty in Christ and going back into bondage. He said it this way. They were dropping out of the school of grace and enrolling in the kindergarten of law. It's a great way to put it. 
I, I thought about it this week, and I thought about it. it it's, it's, like, it's like a little child who is, who's sitting there. Did you ever make mud pies as a child? Anybody? Did you ever make mud pies? Some of you probably ate them too. You shouldn't have eaten them, all right? It's like a little child who makes mud pies and they're so satisfied with the mud pies and, and even though it's mud, they, they look at my cake, look at the pie that I made and then one day they realize that they can get a cake mix and they can make a real cake and they can eat that cake. Boy, if I'd have never discovered that, how different my body would be right now, right? But having discovered that, they go, no, I don't want the real cake. I'll go back to, I'll go back to making mud pies in the sandbox. It's exactly what these folks were doing. When they had experienced new life in Christ, and now they were going back to that formal, formal, formal way of life. He says in verse 10, you observe days and months and various seasons and, and years. They were being told or taught that if you observe certain days and months and times of the year, that they'd be more pleasing to God. And throughout the history of the church, there have been a, there's been a reoccurring temptation for believers to adhere to certain celebrations so that they can maintain a favorable standing with God. In fact, in medieval times, some were taught the ritual of an annual confession and Easter communion was the minimum that was necessary in order to be a member of the church in good standing. Here's what's really tragic. Sometimes we talk about medieval times and we go, I'm glad I don't live in medieval times. Glad I would never do that. Here's the tragedy, and we just saw it lived out in our culture over the last couple weeks. You know what I'm going to say. Today, even in many evangelical churches, thousands of non-active members come to church at Christmas. They come at Easter, assuming that somehow some semi-annual pilgrimage is all that the Lord requires of them. Now, if we observe special days hoping to gain some spiritual merit, then we're sinning. But if the observance that we are expressing or experiencing is part of our liberty in Christ and we let the Spirit enrich us with his grace, then that can be a blessing. But if you think that coming to a service, whether that's a Sunday morning or coming on Christmas or Easter, we call those priesters, if you come at those particular times and you think that somehow you attain favor with God, and that you're automatically going to grow in grace because of your religious observance, you're guilty of legalism. In fact, in Romans chapter 14, Paul makes it very clear that one day is not above another day. It's not about a day. That's why we come to worship on a Sunday, but we could just as easily worship on a Saturday night or a Tuesday afternoon or any other time that the body of Christ, that the church decides to get together. These people had become convinced, I, I have to be here at this day, at this time, and do this and do these things. Verse 11, Paul says, I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. Probably nothing worse than for a pastor to get to the point where he looks out over a group of people and goes, this has been worthless. I really believe that I've come to the point where I've invested all of this time and you haven't heard a blessed thing that I've said. And you continue to live the way you've lived, or worse yet, to walk away from what you had been convinced was truth. And that's where Paul is. And he's going, after all this travel, after the illness, after the loneliness, after the struggles, they even threw stones at me. And now look at you. Verse 12, brothers, I entreat you. Some translations say, I beg you. Become as I am. For I also have become as you are. For now, Paul's going to be done with his arguments and he's going to give a rather heartfelt exhortation. And 
He says, you know I've, I've always lived, how I've always lived since I've received Christ. He said, in effect, and how I lived while I ministered among you. And that's the way that I want you to live. If you remember, when the Apostle Paul came to Christ, he was literally stripped of legalism, in which he had been probably more entangled and ensnared than, than few other Jews of his time had been. Philippians chapter 3, he writes, I was circumcised the eighth day, not the seventh day, the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. And he said, I got to the point, verse 7, that whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And although he now willingly became like a Jew when among the Jews and like a Gentile when he was among the Gentiles, Paul never represented himself nor thought of himself as of anything more than simply a redeemed sinner. Now this verse, uh, verse 12, is, is, uh, is somewhat unfortunate in its division uh, because if you look at it, it's pretty obvious that the end of verse 12 actually should be with verse uh, 13. He says, you did me no wrong. You could kind of in parentheses, by the way, in your Bible, just put a little transitional statement there, but you did me no wrong. I don't really hold anything against you, but you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly what his bodily ailment was. Some believe it probably had something to do with his eyes. You read over in uh, Galatians chapter 6 where he says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you. Theologians over the years have said, well, it's pretty obvious that he had, a, he had an issue with his eyes and that was his ailment. And he, he, he may have gone to where they were for some healing. Maybe there were some better doctors that were there that could help him. But Paul had apparently either become seriously ill while in Galatia or else went there to uh, recuperate. Some suggested that maybe he contracted malaria. If you've ever had malaria, you know that that could be a very good reason why he went someplace to recover. And some speculate, in fact, that, uh, that being there in the low swampy regions of Pamphylia, uh, that he decided to go to the higher and healthier areas of Galatia and minister there. And although malaria can be uh, very painful and debilitating, uh, those effects uh, are not continuous, and so he might have had some moments where he could, where he could teach, where he could, where he could preach, and so I believe that that explanation is probably uh, plausible. But in ancient times, without the benefits of medication, it's so great to have med medication. Uh, I was diagnosed as probably having malaria when I came back from one of my Africa trips, and I can tell you, I was at death's door going, let me in. I'd rather go see Jesus right now. And then they give, gave me a pill, and literally a few hours later, I felt, like a, I felt like a new man. But in ancient times, without the benefit of good medicines or, or, uh, or other modern care, diseases were often very disfiguring, and uh, sometimes even the smell of somebody that had a disease was nauseating. And to most people in the ancient world, they would stay away from somebody that was sick. And so Paul is saying, not only did you take care of me, but although my condition was a trial to you, you didn't even scorn or despise me. That means you must really love them, right? Like some of you do with your little kids when they're sick and they're snotty and stuff's all over them and only a mom, right? 
I mean, don't call me to come and minister to your child at that particular moment, right? I mean, I'd do it for my child, but I'm probably not going to do it for your child, right? You say, let's see, that's where I go again. Call Matt. Matt will do it, all right? He'll, he, will, he will minister to them. These people looked at Paul and whatever it was that was the illness that he was experiencing, they said, come on in. It's like he was an angel from God and they wanted to hear what he said and they, and they treated him with honor and with dignity. They took care of him as a minister of the gospel and he was bringing them the truth and they loved it. And we're gonna run out of time here pretty quickly and it's unfortunate because this is really a great text. But if you were to go back to Acts chapter 13, in fact, if you have your Bible there and you wanna turn there, you might uh, wanna read even as I'm talking. In Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 15, Paul is there in this region. He's with these people. And then the the Jewish leaders say to him, do you have any words of encouragement for the people? (laughs) Paul goes, no, I don't have anything to say. What? Of course I have some words of encouragement. And they say, well, then say it. And so he does for the next 26 verses. He gives them the gospel. And look at their response in verse 42 in Acts chapter 13. It says, the people begged that they would preach again on the next Sabbath. Ooh, how great it would be if I got done today and somebody stood up and went, do not stop. Please go on and on and on. We love this. This is awesome. We, we love the liberating truth of the gospel. Please preach. Now, some sarcastic individual is probably going to do that at the end. Okay, so it's not going to be funny if you do it. Just want to let you know. But that's really what they were doing. They were saying, hey, what about next Sunday? Can you come back and preach to us again? This is so awesome. This message is so liberating. Look at verse 44. It says, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word. I'll tell you what. Talk about confidence as a preacher, right? I mean, you preach, and then a week later, they bring all their friends and go, listen to him. Listen to this message that he's preaching. Verse 48 says, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were, as many as were appointed to eternal life, they believed. Their lives were transformed. They were changed. And so, given all of that, given the fact that they had loved him so deeply, that they had cared for him in his affliction, that they seemingly were, were just so appreciative of the liberating message of the gospel that he had preached to them, he asked the question in verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? <laughs> now, any preacher that's been in any church, any pastor that's been in any church for any length of time can really appreciate this, right? I mean, where, where you go, you know, you, you hear about a pastor's honeymoon period. You have a honeymoon period at a job that you might take. Pastors have that too. You come in and, man, it's like you walk on water. Everything that you say is good and wonderful. Everybody loves you. The buzz in the whole congregation. And then all of a sudden, you lead some way. You go a direction that a group of people don't like and things change. And a pastor has a tendency to say, what has become of the blessedness? What has become of the blessedness? What what happened? Because there was a point at which you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. You once listened to me. What happened? What changed in our relationship? Let let me say this to you. That many people appreciate a pastor, they appreciate a, a teacher, a leader, a mentor, a discipler, only to the point where that person doesn't say something 
that is offensive to them, something that challenges them out of their comfort zone or stands against something in their life that they want to do but are now told they shouldn't do or something in their life that they're not doing that they're now told they should do. All of a sudden, that person becomes very unpopular, and that's where Paul was. Verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You would do well, by the way, this morning, and, and I've done this this week in my study, to think through this. Are there people in my life that I have begun to despise, that I have begun to withdraw myself from because they speak truth into my life? You do well to stop and ask yourself that question. I know there have been times in my life where somebody's told me something that I didn't want to hear and I withdrew from them. Or I began to label them as they're legalistic or they have an ax to grind with me or somehow they're against me. Let me tell you, the safest place to be is in a church like this with people that love you, that love the gospel, that love the word of God and are committed to living biblically-based lives, having people around you who you've given the right to speak truth into your life. So that when they speak truth into your life, even though at the moment you may not want to receive that, you receive it because you know that they love you and they know that they're giving you the pure, unadulterated truth from the word of God. There's nothing greater than to have people like that in your life. If you don't, I'd suggest that you get some of those people. If you have some of those people and you've rejected them because they've told you something that you didn't like, that you didn't want to hear, I would say this week would be a good time to go back and confess that to them, ask them to forgive you, and come back into relationship with a person who has the guts to tell you something that you don't necessarily want to hear. That was the Apostle Paul. He goes on, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It's always good to be, made, to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. The long and short of it was there were false teachers who, who were coming around and they were telling these people all the things that they wanted to hear, and they were giving them lots of attention. It's a mark of cults. They show a keen interest and affection toward prospective members, and they promise them personal fulfillment and, and happiness. False teachers, Tim Keller said, want followers who glorify them, but Paul wants partners who glorify Christ. There's a big difference. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Verse 19, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Now he speaks like a mom. Now I can't totally relate to this because I've never had children. I've looked at times like I might have children, but I've never had children personally. But Paul now addresses these Galatian believers as my children. And he says basically this, paraphrase, children who are causing me pain like they did when they were born. Moms, can you relate to me? Are you there with me this morning? You know, if your kids are with you, look at them and go, you caused me great anguish and great pain. Imagine that physical pain at that point, yet some of you have been there with your adult children, right? Where you go, this pain is greater than the pain was even at childbirth. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. And any mom who's raised a child up probably till the mid-20s at least can say that. There have been times when they've caused you probably what appeared to be more painful than the time when you gave them birth. And that's the analogy that Paul is making here in this text. And he reminds, me that it reminds them that it's going to be this way until they walk with Jesus as they should. 
He's not at this point, by the way, arguing like a lawyer. He's been doing that all along. I mean, he comes in pretty strong. He's ticked off. Now, all of a sudden, he's a, he's a loving parent that's talking to a wayward child. And he says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. I wish I could be there to talk with you personally rather than Skyping with you. Okay, he probably wasn't Skyping. Rather than just simply writing a letter to you, rather than talking to you on the telephone, I wish I could be there face to face with you. He says, I'm at my wit's end, and I know I'm coming on awfully strong, but can you blame me? Because I love you, and I don't want you to be overtaken by a message that takes you back into bondage. I want you to understand grace. Well, what's at stake? We're sinners. Our sin separates us from God, and we all live forever somewhere. That's what's at stake. We're a sinner. That's desperate. Sin separates us from God. That's a problem. And when we leave this planet, we live forever somewhere with someone. That's what's at stake. Here's the bottom line, and I hope you see the importance of the gospel. I hope you understand that there are two ways to be lost. Number one, one is to reject outright Jesus in the gospel. Some of you, maybe that's where you are. You are just simply rejecting Jesus in the gospel. The other way is to appear to accept Jesus, but to add all of these things to him. And the devil, by the way, is happy with either choice that you make. And I hope that you're seeing that the gospel is different from either of those options. Whenever you add anything to Jesus, you subtract from him. Jesus has done everything that is necessary for us to be right with him. He is the only basis of our acceptance with God. And what God did for us when he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross is a life-changing, eternity-altering, incredible gift. He took all of our sin, our regrets, our failures, our disappointments, and when we lay those at the foot of the cross and we trust in him to do what he says he will do, and in fact, he did do by his death and resurrection, everything changes. And that's the motivation. That's the reason why we give you the pure gospel. Because the consequences of not understanding the gospel are devastating, number one. And number two, because we love you. That's why Paul did what he did. That's why Paul wrote and said what he said and wrote. And that's why we do what we do. I would challenge you this morning that if you have not yet crossed over that line of faith, maybe you're one of these people who say, I've always known God. I don't say that sarcastically, by the way. I believe a lot of people think that that's, that's just the way that it is. I've always known God. I've always, summary statement, I've always been a good person. I've never really done anything really bad. Well, that's contrary to Scripture because Scripture says that we've all sinned and we've fallen short of the mark. We've missed the mark. And to place your eternity in, in anything other than the finished work of Christ on the cross is to be eternally disappointed. What better time than January 5th, 2014, right at the beginning of a new year, to say, I am going to begin new life in Christ. I'm going to cross over that line of faith. I'm going to come into a right relationship with Jesus, plus nothing, and as a result, have everything.
because my sin debt has been paid in full and I have been reconciled to God, the relationship that I was created to have. That's the gospel for the 43rd time in the book of Galatians. That's it. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for the truth of your word. I do not apologize at all for giving the gospel for the 43rd time in the gospel in the uh, book of Galatians. Thank you for this message, God, because it is the most liberating message that a human being can ever experience. And my prayer, Father, goes out for those that are in this room this morning that have yet to cross over that line of faith. For my friends that, like the Apostle Paul, I love so deeply. I care about their eternal destination. I don't want them to be led astray and to be lied to by others that would preach a gospel other than what is clearly taught in Scripture. That our salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, bringing glory to God alone himself. Father, I pray for the man or the woman or the student that's in this room this morning and is yet to come into a relationship with Jesus. God, may today be the day. Maybe even right now as as I'm praying, maybe they would pray a prayer just acknowledging their sin before you. To acknowledge that they know that the only way that debt of sin can be paid is by trusting in you alone. I pray that they would pray that this morning, that they would acknowledge that this morning, cross that line of faith and come into a relationship with Jesus. A life-changing, eternity-altering relationship that we were created to have. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.